Hey, this is Glenn Thrush with Politico's Off Message Podcast. This week, my guest is the inimitable Hugh Hewitt, a conservative talk radio host, interviewer extraordinaire, and now a debate host or debate co-host. Hugh sat through the three-hour marathon Republican debate last week, asked a few questions, uh, and particularly had an interesting exchange with Donald Trump, with whom he has had kind of a uh, Boswell and Johnson relationship. A couple of weeks ago, as you guys might recall, uh, Hugh uh, quizzed Donald Trump, even though Hugh says he didn't really do it, intended as a gotcha, quizzed uh, Donald Trump on the names of some of uh, America's great adversaries, and Trump fumbled the distinction between the Kutz Force and the Kurds. Well, Hugh kind of cleaned that up in the debate. Uh, which angered, I think, some of his supporters in uh, conservative media. Uh, Megyn Kelly said it was a weird exchange and that Hugh was batting his eyes. I don't think that was really the case. Uh, but I asked Hugh about that. And Hugh Hewitt, in general, is just a really interesting guy. He started off his career in Harvard. Uh, uh, he uh, developed a relationship with Ray Price, who was a senior advisor to Richard Nixon, and eventually wound up working with Nixon on a book becoming the executive director of Nixon's library and had a, a brief but interesting conflict with Bob Woodward that Hugh talks about. Uh, in general, this is just a guy who's done a lot of things in his life that most people don't know about. Uh, we touched on a lot of these, these topics. But the main thing about Hugh Hewitt is he knows how to talk with people. He's from Warren, Ohio. Um, just one of those rare instances where somebody uh, in the business of talk actually is good at it. Uh, so here's my interview with Hugh Hewitt. Well, let me start with your hair, which is, <laughs> I, have to, yeah, I have to say, Hugh, you have beautiful hair. And it's, in person, it's nicer than even on TV. And seeing you and Tapper up there, that was like, that was like a hair carnival. Well, the, uh, the people, as I looked at the 11 in front of me, I had lots of time to study up throughout three hours. It went for a long time. Everyone looked turned out. And I don't know, no one, here's my biggest surprise from the CNN debate. No one told me anything about what to wear, or, or I could have shown up in a clown suit. Maybe some people think I did, but I, I nevertheless could have worn like stripes and plaids and checkers. And, Is that and true? Absolutely. No one said a word. I picked my, my wife picked my tie out. She vetoed. I wanted to wear James Homan's, your, your alumni's yes. orange tie, which I stole from him at Hoover, which I'm wearing on Meet the Press tomorrow because it's a Browns tie. And they put the kibosh on that uh, 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 I'll think of his name in just a second from uh, Washington. David Drucker said to me, who's a, who's a dandy, that you cannot wear that on TV. Why? Uh, because it, it lacks substance and depth. I said, it's a Brooks Brothers <laughs> orange tie. And he, I said, what does substance and depth have to do with a tie? But I, I accepted. Uh, I thought it would clash with Trump's hair, perhaps. Uh, um, <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit about uh, part of your bio that I've always found most fascinating. Tell me how you met Richard Nixon and how you got that gig. Sure. I'm sitting on the steps of Winthrop House at Harvard University in 1978 without a job, without anything to do, and no clue and no money. I did own a Dodge Dart 74 Sport. And Ed Slant Mansfield. Six. Hmm? Slant 6. Slant, oh, well, it had a racing stripe on it. It was really quite the awful car. And Ed Mansfield, whose father is Harvey Mansfield, walks by and says, what are you going to do next year? I said, I have no idea. I have no job. He said, I know a guy, which are four of the eight most important words in the English language. I know a guy, and have you ever considered? And I know a guy named Ray Price who needs a research assistant. He had been teaching at Harvard's Institute of Politics the year before, and I did not take his seminar, but Ed did. And he's looking for an assistant on a book on uh, media. 
in D.C. So I sent him a letter and he said, oh, come down. Let's talk. Maybe I can use a research assistant. He lived over on Prospect Street in Georgetown. Now lives in New York, grand old man of New York. And I show up at Ray's house in uh, the spring of 78 and he opens the door and he said, oh my gosh, I forgot, which is not a good sign. Uh, and then he said, I've just received a call from President Nixon to go to California to write the real war. He's behind. But David Eisenhower needs a research assistant, I'm told. Would you be interested in going moving to San Clemente? To which I replied, of course, yes, I don't have a job. Phone rings. It's Julie Eisenhower. David's out of town. Would I come? I said, yes, I will. So I packed up my car, drove across the country, worked for David for four months on Eisenhower at war. And then RN, that was kind of a tryout, I think. And then RN made me the offer to join his staff, which I did in November of 78 and stayed with him until August of uh, uh, 1980 when I went to Michigan Law School. What was the first meeting like with him? Uh, Extraordinary. I stayed for two hours. I sat down and immediately began to ask him substantive questions because I had been briefed that he is not the world's best at small talk, which I would see repeated uh, over many, many times. When my parents came out, I asked if I could bring them in. Awkward silence for about five minutes after they exchanged Warren, Ohio pleasantries. He had been there a few times. And then my mom asked, what do you think is going to happen with China? And they left two hours later. <laughs> and the old man was terrific. Not my old man, that old man. Was terrific when he was asked to talk about the world and people would ask him questions. So it was a seminar, a tutorial with the world's greatest uh, disgraced straight statesman. And well, I took every advantage of it. Were you, uh, um, when you were at Harvard, uh, which, you know, a lonely conservative, I would imagine, uh, was he somebody that you looked up to particularly? Was he somebody that you ever would have imagined yourself working for? No, he, he, he resigned. I did look up to him, but he resigned the presidency in 1974 and vanished from our screens when I, just as I began. And I was about the lone conservative. Grover Norquist was in Winthrop House. My college roommates were Mark Guerin, who went on to become Bill wow. Clinton's comms director, sure. and Dan Poneman, who just resigned as the deputy secretary of energy. So we had lots of, lots of arguments with my Dem buddies and lots of other Dems from that era. Doris Kearns Goodwin was my first professor. I just did meet the press with her last week. That was terrific. James Q. Wills. It was a great time to be in government at Harvard, 74 to 78. But I, uh, I did not feel like a conservative or a liberal. You're a college kid. You just right. do college kid stuff. But it's interesting. A lot of people, a lot of people are very embittered by those experiences uh, going to Ivy League schools. You, you don't, in general, seem to have that issue. I don't, feeling I don't, sort of like a feeling uh, like you know the the last of the Mohicans surrounded by the uh, no. The I'm colonists. the luckiest man in America. I have a wonderful wife. I've had a wonderful life and three three great kids. And I I also have a uh, just so lucky serendipitously. I never intended to be in the media like you. I got asked to join the media sideways, which never happens. I opened the Nixon Library. Uh, after six years in the Reagan administration, the old man called up and said, would you come oversee the construction? I don't know anything about construction. He just wanted some. Were you the guy who came up with the idea? I haven't been there since the renovation, but were you the guy, the guy who came up with the idea of putting the house in the middle of the... Uh... <laughs> the, the no, I, 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 the house was there. My idea it was... was the I, smallest I, house. I, it is the smallest house I've ever seen. I'm have glad you went house. in. You yeah. don't get Nixon unless you go in. And then I don't know if but they the let piano, you upstairs. Sir, is, if I'm not mistaken, the piano kind of dominates the parlor. Yeah. That we are in a, in a nice conference yeah, yeah. room and yeah. it's as big as the down downstairs and there were four boys one of whom died upstairs in a, in a right. uh, slanted attic and it overlooks his birthplace a grave and it overlooks the library and it's the story of his life on 15 acres and it's an amazing place that people ought to go to so you first probably came to national attention uh uh by busting bob woodward's yes. balls um do you regret uh, you you uh, initially denied him access to sort of research stuff can i tell you the story yeah tell me the story. okay the yeah, story yeah. needs to be told woodward's never done my show because of the stupid 
two-minute moments. One of the reasons why I've never really been a fan of the media. LA Times calls up, can we do a story on the archive? Sure, nobody wants to do a story on the archive. They're boring, right. so I'm excited. So the writer goes with me for three hours through the archives, and we don't have his presidential papers. We got everything else. Show them the storage, temperature control, beautiful stuff, security. Great interview, long time, a lot of investment. At the end, she said, can anyone use it? And I toss away line, memo to young journalists and young people, never throw the toss away line. I said, oh, anyone can use this. Well, I suppose maybe not Woodward. He's not really a journalist. It's a joke. It's a joke. Right. Front page, LA Times, next day. Hewitt bars Woodward. I said, oh, God. And they, and they came back to me and they said, what do you think? I said, well, maybe there would be a test of whether or not the president wanted him. Two days later, the president calls me up and says, Hugh. I didn't say this. I said, drop it. And so it was me. It was so on Nick, me. It was on so me. So Nixon told you to, so you out Nixon, Nixon. Uh, I did. And and John Taylor <laughs> finally <laughs> delivered the, the old man was very, very gentle about it. And then John Taylor called up the next day and said, who is the chief of staff? And the guy, if anyone can ever get to talk, knows Nixon better. Anyone in his family in America spent 20 years with him. I only spent two years with him and then two years as the library director. Uh, John said, Hugh, end this. Because this is not the president's decision. And so I said, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, which is the easiest thing to say, and it was over. But well, it'll be in my obit. It's also, you know, it's also marriage. Um, did Nixon give you any career advice? Uh, he gave me lots of career advice. He told me not to leave uh, when I was there for one year, then he told me to go to law school after two. Uh, I'd been accepted at Michigan Law School. I had been turned down originally, and I wanted to go to Harvard or Michigan. Harvard because it was my school, Michigan because it was my dad's. He went to Michigan Law School. And you're Even from a family of lawyers. State. Hmm? You're from a family of lawyers, right? You're uh, uh, my dad, and my, my I'm named for a judge who was a judge at Superior Court. Uh, my grandfather was a fireman, so it's a fireman wow. lawyer uh, deal. My mom was a nurse, so it's very Ohio mixed up family. Four grandparents from Ashtabula lived in Warren. My parents did their whole life, um, and so. It's, it's an unusual American story that I think replicates over and over again. Whenever I get to talk to people, I like to know where they grew up. I like to know where they got to high school. And I like to know who said to them, I know a guy. Because right. somebody always says to everybody, I know a guy, because that's how you get jobs. Right. Well, the, the guy in my neighborhood uh, who everyone knew was the hitman. Uh, the, the, uh, I'm from Brooklyn. Where'd you grow up? Oh, you are? I'm from Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. Is it, is it true, though? Really? Yes, Mom? it's absolutely true. My mother, uh, I'll tell you a brief story. My mother... Uh, we owned a Carvel ice cream store on Brighton Beach Avenue in Brooklyn. And there was a guy who came in. He ran school buses for day camps. And he would come in, and he was a big, very surly, laconic dude. And he really liked my mom. And the, we were very happy that he would show up because he would unload all the campers and they'd buy a ton of ice cream, right? A couple of years later, we pick up the Daily News this guy has been found dead, and it turned out he was one uh, of the main gunmen for the mob, and he had buried a lot of people out by, out in the uh, Meadowlands, like 25 bodies. <laughs> so that was, in my neighborhood, I'm not saying that was a common thing, but in my neighborhood, that kind of thing happened. See, Northeastern Ohio is pretty mobbed up. Um, there's a great movie called Kill the Irishman with Christopher Walken. I've seen right. it, yeah. Isn't it a tr yeah. that, that was the Cleveland of my youth. You yeah. wouldn't go up to Cleveland, cars would blow up. You'd go to the Indians and the Browns games, but cars would blow up. And... So it was pretty mobbed up in northeastern Ohio, but they stayed in their world and they and they left the kids alone and the Catholic world had some intersection, Irish Catholic kids, Italian Catholic kids, uh, people working the line at Republic and, and GM. They knew about it, but it really didn't invade the way that it would right. invade Brooklyn. Right. Um, so uh, in terms of the, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, something slightly more contemporary. 
Uh, your encounter with Trump was a, a pretty interesting one uh, recently. Now, now you've said kind it's of... It's ongoing. I'm talking to him Monday on the show. So you, you've had a co- sort of a couple of iterations on this. Um, just tell me a little bit, what was your intention when you were... Uh, go? Because I got to tell you, I think it's entirely legitimate to give... I think we should give people written exams. Uh, I have no problem trying to figure out, uh, for us trying to figure out, I think it's the most legitimate function that we could possibly uh, have. But tell me, what was your intention going in and asking those questions? You've said it a couple of times before, but give okay. me a sense. Uh, first of all, fault on me for phrasing the opening question the wrong way. Suleimani had come up in the last debate, the first debate. Right. And so I asked the first question I'm remembering here, uh, you know General Suleimani. And he said, no, and he didn't. It didn't click. Right. And so that's when I made the mistake. And I said, well, he runs the Quds Force's second clue, because right. that came up in the first debate. Right. And he said, Kurds, that is totally legitimate on radio. You and I are talking face to face. When I'm talking to him in New York and I'm in California, Kurds, Kurds on the radio, you can mess that up. So I, I totally give that to him. Uh, he thought it was a gotcha question then when I went on to say, okay, here's Al Zawahiri. Uh, here are a few other, uh, you know, here's the, uh, uh, the head of the Kur- uh, Qurani and others. And he said, you know, that's a gotcha question. I said, no, it, it, I didn't ask you their names. He said, do you know the players without a scorecard? And that's different. But he thought I was asking him about the names. So the fault is on me. I don't apologize. Right. I should have structured it differently so that there was greater clarity Mr. Trump, there are a lot of people running around. I, I profoundly disagree with you. I don't think you have to apologize for anything. I didn't that. apologize. No, I, I, I don't clarifying. Think, no, I don't think you did anything wrong. I mean, I think it's and I think it's totally legitimate to run to run the traps on that stuff, particularly in a candidate like Trump. Well, first of all, let me ask you. His answer in the second debate was essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, is when I need to know that stuff. I'll get a bunch of guys, I'll sit in a room, and in a couple hours, I'll figure that stuff well, out. Well, in the fr- in, in my right. conversation with him, we eventually right. got around to Hezbollah and Hamas, right. which he said, I don't know the difference, I will when it matters. Now, but, that was not a trick question. Well, that's well, just a... Yeah, but, uh, you should know the difference between Hamas exactly. and Hezbollah. Exactly. So, but, but, but sort of the... I mean, the reason that you were, were heading down that road was to sort of, I think, and totally appropriately, was to illuminate how much this guy knew and how much this guy doesn't. So my question to you is, is it important for somebody to know, know the players without a scorecard? Everybody needs to know the players without a scorecard between now and the time that votes are cast. And I, and I explain this. I ask everyone if they've read Lawrence Wright, The Looming Tower. I've asked you. I've asked okay. everyone... The fact checker from PolitiFact called me up, and not only did he not had not read the Lawrence right, he didn't even know who Alger Hiss was. I don't know why he's in the who business. the fact checker. The fact checker had never heard of Alger Hiss. So I, and I just said, know, I, I just know the pumpkin. Uh, that, see, very good. If you know the, the the warbler, you're really ahead of the game. I don't I don't expect people to know that stuff, but it's kind of a litmus test about whether you are interested generally in American. Okay, politics. but stop for a second on Trump, and I know I'm picking the sore here. Oh, well, you're not. Keep it. We've talked Trump uh, all hour. Intellectual curiosity to me is a pretty, uh, to me, I, I find with politicians, that is fundamentally the litmus test is intellectual curiosity. Does somebody have a curiosity about the world? Because that gives them the capacity to solve problems. Let me ask you, Glenn, do yes. you know the IRR and its projected hotel at the old post office? Do you know what IRR is? No. Internal rate of return. I've dealt with developers my entire life in my lawyering life. Right. You know, I'm a partner at Aaron Fox, and I, and I right. deal with the Endangered Species Act on the West Coast. That's right. what I do. So there are languages and silos with which we are familiar that others aren't. I'm going to talk to him the next time about the old post office, because I don't know how anyone can make that into a hotel. It's the worst space. I had an office in there when I was general counsel of the NEH. Well, there's no parking. There's no parking. There's no space. There's nothing. So I want to ask him. He'll know that stuff's so cold. I mean, he'll know it. 
He, he, but soon he, there will be a gold lemme exterior. <laughs> there could be. There's a huge <laughs> sign that said Trump, which it took. No, but wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me corny you on this stuff, though. I mean, do you think it is important? Now, now you just you, you you just said it's important for people to study up on this between now and the election. Don't you think it's fun, it's fundamentally important, or at least fundamentally important for uh, voters and conservative voters to know that somebody uh, has a background knowledge and a curiosity about this? Do you think a, yes, a, a better candidate? knows that sort of I, thing. I think it's important. The reason I ask about Lawrence Wright, it's about the taproot of Islamist radicalism, which began in Greeley, Colorado, of all places, when Saeed Khatoub goes there in 1950 or 51. And then he goes back, gets thrown in the Egyptian jail, teaches al-Zawahiri everything, al-Zawahiri teaches Osama everything, they go to Afghanistan, and the rest is terrible history. I think people have to think about, how the hell do we get out of this? Where is this stuff coming from? It's not enough to kill them and give toe tags to Islamist radicals. You got to wonder, what is it? And Sisi went to the big uh, Islamic teaching institution in Cairo and said, we have to reform Islam. Right. We have, and that's the question. So if you're not, if you haven't got the scorecard down, if you don't know the rules of baseball, you don't know who's winning the game. Right. And Don Rumsfeld, God bless him, wrote a memo called the famous snowflake memo. Yep. We have no metrics. Exactly. We don't, we don't know whether we're winning or losing. We don't even know how to play the game. And that was written in 2001 or early two, and we still don't have metrics. But you're getting at really the insider-outsider duality. The nice thing about outsiders is they're not tainted by the system that you and I, um, uh, you know, that you and I imbibe and swim in, right? Um, but they also don't have some of the fundamental knowledge uh, to move the levers of government. I mean, do you think, and that gets again to the question with Trump and the other outsiders, I mean, do you think there is a certain level of, of knowledge of the, the functionality and the history of the government that is a sine qua non for somebody running for president. Yes and no. Trump will get the wall built, which should have been built in 2006. He will get it done because he knows we have interstates 10, 40, 70, 90, 80. It ain't that hard. I mean, we build interstates, we can build a double-sided fence. Uh, on the other hand, Nixon profited immensely from leaving government and having the time to think about what he would do when he would return uh, from 60 to 68. Uh, there's a there's a great thing to be said to get out of town. I left town in '89. I have a, uh, having been deep in the bowels. I mean, I was a deputy director of OPM. You don't get much more deep in the bowels of the federal government than the personnel shop. But uh, yeah, but I talked I talked to Lenny Garment uh, years and years did ago. Did you really? Yeah, you know he's great. He told, uh, he, me, he told yeah. me a great anecdote about Nixon. Um, Nixon and Lenny uh, going across the bridge in Garment's car, Brooklyn Bridge from Manhattan into Brooklyn for some reason, and the car stalled in mid span. And Nixon jumped out, hailed a cab, and left Lenny sitting there with the car. Like a typical you, you Nixon know, story. Have you written up Len Garment for people? <laughs> I have. This, this generation does not know Len Garment. A hell, a hell I, of he, an interesting guy. He threw but, the 50th birthday for Ray Price, and I said, this man's a genius. But look, you know, you were in government, and come on, man, you worked for Nixon. Nobody had a more uh, profound understanding of of pr practically any issue, or it was a quicker study on stuff than Nixon was. I agree. Um, how can a guy like Trump get, get by with really just the most cursory tabloid If he turns page. his immense intelligence on a particular subject, that subject will blow up and, you know, it'll be like uh, Mars invades and, and he'll, <laughs> it, he'll just destroy the subject. But he's got to turn his intelligence to it. I have no doubt if he wasn't, he, he really does believe he doesn't need to know it yet. If he spent three days with Jim Mattis or Stanley McChrystal or any of the generals who've retired he would have the working grasp because he can absorb information flows, which is really the master skill. of. How do you time. know that, though? 
because he because of his success in development. Developers are different people, and I have spent 20 years representing right. them. I still do, doing a couple of projects in California right now. And developers have to manage an extraordinary number of details which arrive suddenly on the scene while overarching moving towards a defined goal, which is to get the doors open so you can make money. Right. So they are very goal-driven. And if Donald Trump, maybe I have more sympathy for him or more intuitive understanding of him because I have represented developers who are a unique brand of American. And it doesn't matter if they're building the first hotel in Denver or if they're building a golf course in California or if they're trying to put up low-income housing in um, in New York City, they're all the same. So you now you've done six uh, six interviews with him. It's going to be number seven. Yeah. Is that um, well, eight counting the debates? Eight counting the debates. Do you think that this is a guy just from your just from your cursory uh, interactions with him? Do you think this is a guy who is has the qualifications and temperament to be president? Uh, everyone who wins has, by definition, the qualifications and temperament to be president. He is most like, as far as I can tell, and I've read deeply. Andrew Jackson and Teddy Roosevelt. And Andrew Jackson and Teddy Roosevelt did not give a damn about what the Congress or the other people around them thought or did. They, had, they were checked by them sometimes, but they arrived without respect for the existing rules set. And so if Trump wins, and it's possible, I, I would I'd put him at a 25% uh, margin, probably as high as Jeb Bush. Those two are the, you know. Why, yeah, yeah. Well, why do you still... Uh, um, I agree with you about Bush. I, I mean, I, I've always, uh, you know, I got a, a standing 10-buck bet on Rubio. Um, he is, he's in my second tier of possibilities. You know, I put Trump, Jeb, top on uh, of list. I put Walker, Rubio, Fiorina, and um, Cruz as possibly running the board in the next level. And I don't know if the other ones actually have paths forward. You need a path forward. I'm probably forgetting someone. Oh, Christie has a path forward. Definitely has a path forward in the passing lane of the George Washington Bridge, <laughs> no doubt. But the um, um, in terms of the in terms of Jeb, do you think he showed enough alpha? Because because you know, uh, my sense in the first debate, the the optics were very ugly. In the first two hours of this one, he looked a little. Uh, he had his ears pinned and didn't really seem comfortable on the attack. Do you think he did enough to show to, sh to show people donors whatever that he's got enough alpha in him to take? Yes, Trump? I arranged to sit down with. Um, 20 people yesterday, Aaron Fox lent me a conference room. I asked them all to bring in different people that they knew so I could do my own focus group. Some were Bush people, some were apolitical. One had gone to a Rubio watch party. I hadn't talked to any normal people since the debate. Right. And so I said, bring in some clients, people who care about what's going on, a couple of out-of-towners. And I went around the room and I asked them what they saw. And the sort of professional DC uh, donor class is very reassured by Bush's performance. And I believe he killed it on My Brother Kept Us Safe, which is his takeaway blurb. And he's got a hundred million bucks and he's got an organization to kill. And you know, it's like if you're, there's a mountain out there and it's the Bush mountain and it ain't moving. Right. And so people gotta climb it if they wanna get over him to get to the nomination, some people are trying. You know what I think, and you tell me, March 15th, there's a Florida primary. Somebody doesn't go on after that. I don't know if Rubio or, or Bush, you know, well, somebody doesn't go on. I had a Bush advisor tell me a month ago, flat out, that if he loses Iowa and New Hampshire, and which at the moment looks pretty damn dead certain, unless something fundamental changes, that he does not really have a path forward. They feel that Florida is not uh, the backstop. They think that if the momentum uh, moves to some other candidate, Trump, Rubio, whomever, I can't really see a path for some of the other ones, uh, that he's he's toast if he doesn't win one of those first two. Oh, that's interesting. I've always thought he's just got Florida, then they reset because the the the, 
the rule set that Reince and the RNC set up, I believe, leads to a brokered convention because Kasich's going to win Ohio on the 15th. I agree with you. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, there are, uh, Christie's going to hang around and win Jersey in June. And I think we're going to have a hell of a June primary in California, which hasn't meant anything since the beginning of time. I mean, briefly in 2008, it meant a little bit. But, but wouldn't after. it be a blast if Cal like it'd be to like you you would have your Ohio California axis completely uh, fulfilled? You own that. Uh, well, there Frank Kaye becomes the most important person <laughs> in America because Brian is the editorial page editor of the Orange County Register and the Riverside Press Enterprise, and basically knows everybody in the state, and he will own the Republican. Primary. So you and Kasich have had some pretty uh, spirited interactions. It's funny. I thought he was sort of anesthetized in the second debate. I was like wondering. He's uh, playing for New Hampshire independent voters. Uh, he is playing such a New Hampshire game. I see him on Meet the Press tomorrow, and the and the governor gives me a hard time because he's a Buckeye and I'm a Buckeye, and he knows my hometown. He knows my friends. Right. He went to Sam Cavelli's house and had a, a fundraiser. I've known Sam since I was two. Right. So he hangs around Warren. He knows Warren. He knows me. And so he gives me an Ohioan's hard time. Right. He says, I'll slap you down on the radio. <laughs> he says that to me. So what he did at the debate was he talked to New Hampshire independent voters. That's who he talked to. It's so clear to me. He's going to go win New Hampshire, take, take some of the South Carolina delegates, and then get to the 15th. And Michigan is the 8th. He's going up to he's in Michigan today as we talk three times. Then he's coming to meet the press tomorrow. So and, and he's also doing uh, State of the State of the Union. He's got a plan, and he won 86 of 88 counties in Ohio. He won Trumbull and Mahoning. I'm a Trumbull County guy. Never been uh, blue. It's been blue stuff since I was born. Kennedy and Kerry finished their campaign. So why don't you in throw Warren, him, Why don't you throw him in sort of the upper tier then? Uh, because winning New Hampshire requires beating Chris Christie for the same vote. And that I haven't got a good sense yet. Those guys are both playing New Hampshire. Jeb's kind of playing New Hampshire a little bit, which has always been good to the Bushes. Right. Yep. Um, you t I've, I've set foot in New Hampshire once in my life to a Jerry Ford rally when I was a freshman and sophomore in college in 1976. I don't know anything about New Hampshire. And Kasich feels to me. Okay, so Christie, I think Christie has a certain feel to him, but I think I think Kasich is the kind of guy that would do well there. I think Jeb. You know, they love their uh, town halls there, and they, and it's a very tactile, and it's a meaner... You said tactile. Yes. Kasich touches you. Exactly. He, uh, you're, you're, he well, I'm sorry you. I'm sorry to hear that. I believe you should report that. No, no, but uh, it, I, I don't like it. I'm an, I, I, I am an Irish Catholic, <laughs> lace-curtain Irishman, and I'd rather you sat, actually sat in that chair way over there than be this but, close But the thing me. about New Hampshire, I think people don't understand sort of the fundamental tonal difference between Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa is hopeful movement. That's why the evangelicals dominate on the, on the right and why the... And why the uh, hoary progressives uh, dominate on the left, right? New Hampshire is a much more sort of consumer-oriented, Boston-tinged, tough sort of thing. And I and I think Kasich has a very uh, has a very interesting kind of duality to him, right? Now you're saying, Ch and I'm saying. Ch oh, I'm sorry. I should do. K okay. I should. I also screw up Colorado. Is it Colorado or Colorado? Colorado. Yeah. And but Kasich, uh, uh, you know. And he. Here's the other thing. It didn't come up. I had a question that we yeah. ran out of time for. Yeah. Kasich has won 14 elections, right? twice for the state senate, nine times for Congress, twice for governor. 
He ran but did not win in the uh, primaries for the 19, uh, for the 2000 nomination, but he got a little bit of experience. Man knows how to win elections. Yep. He's got a great temperament for elections. He knows how to rise slowly. This is, by the way, Walker is not dead. I'm yeah, here tell to tell me, you Okay, yeah, tell me why Walker isn't because dead. Because we're seeing, it's like the Harry Potter novels. They're all the same, but they, each one gets more complex. <laughs> and, and he's been dead each of the three times he ran, and then he slowly gets up. He's like Rocky IV. He goes down, he gets up on one knee, he staggers, he stands up, and then he, he, as you get closer, he closes. So this is the fourth book. The fifth book is going to be the nom- in his mind. The fifth book is going to be when he wins the general. The sixth book is his re-election. And the seventh book is when he turns it over to his successor. <laughs> Honest to God, Walker is a story... That so people, you think? Well, I mean, why are you okay? So why are you investing so heavily in Walker? I I'm mean, not investing. I just think he's the most interesting story because I followed Wisconsin pretty closely. Yeah, a hundred thousand people is a hundred thousand people. It's like going to the Browns game and have everyone boo you. Right. And I saw them boo Bill Nelson. I, I went to every Holmes game from '65 to '74. I saw him boo Bill Nelson off the field. I saw him boo Mike Phipps off the field. They're boo birds when they're quarterback. Manziel tomorrow playing the Titans might get booed. They off never the booed Brian Sipe. They never did. Quick story. Phone <laughs> rings one day. It's Brian Sipe. Hello. Said, Can I come up and have lunch with you? I said, I'll drive down and pick you up in San Diego. He, he was doing a, a project. I said, of course I'll come and see you. Uh, so this is Walker. 100,000 people. He doesn't. He's not for folding. I'm not. I'm sorry, man. I'm not buying. Look, I don't think he's going okay. away. I'm not selling. I'm just I don't think he's going. The other one that you see. Keep him, this in the files when he's. All right. The other one that you seem unaccountably hot for is Christie. Why do you have this confidence in Chris Christie? Because I think he connects with voters. And uh, by the way, I sat closest to him on Wednesday night. It's like sitting next to the sun. In fact, if it was Survivor, my team would have won. Jake's team would have gotten killed. They had Rubio who would have won a couple individual events. But I had Jeb, Walker, Carly, Kasich, Christie. My five would have beaten their six. They'd have lost someone from the island. Because uh, Rubio only won like a couple of individual events. And Ted had a good answer on the Supreme Court. Ted Cruz but you tell me, I love Edith Jones versus David Souter because right. I know Judge Jones. Right. And I think, and I, and I worked with both John Roberts and Mike Luddick. They're both friends of mine. And the Chief Justice and, and John Luddick are the same guy. And if I'd had a question, I would have said, do you really think Luddick and Roberts would have answered these questions differently? They're the same guy, uh, the same judge, the same brilliant giant brain. I was the stupidest guy ever to work in the White House Counsel's Office. These guys are smart. I. I protected the seal of the United States against all comers. <laughs> That's really If good. any chauffeur was using it, I'd send him a letter. I'd, I'd hold him off. No, but, wait, you know, where did you, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you on Christie, but um, how did you, you have a personal relationship with Roberts, right? Well, I, I saw him a few months ago, but I hadn't seen him before that for five years, and I hadn't seen him before that for 10 years. We worked together and shared an office like this for a year. Isn't and it we t- played on the White House basketball team, which was one and nine. Was he? <laughs> he does not have a jump shot. We ran in the. I will not make. Front. Does he? Does he have one like a Bob Cousy set shot? No, he. The, it was the worst basketball team in the. We, I, I signed us up. I organized Peter Robinson, Josh Gilder, a bunch of guys, the chief, and I played us in the D League in Alexandria, expecting that ten short, slow white guys from the White House could play in the D League of Alexandria. And I finally, I had to go get a ringer from a GAO named Denny Mattiot. He's passed away now. He'd played point guard for Teal. He was a friend of mine. And we won one game at the end because he could drain from outside. Do you remember, uh, how did Roberts deal with defeat? <laughs> well, everybody, we all, we all went home and said, don't tell anyone about this. 
<laughs> it was such a bad basketball. And how did he look in shorts? I'm not going to. I have a picture and you're not seeing it. Okay. Um, uh, but, uh, but does it piss you off slash amuse you that all these guys who essentially either voted for him and supported him as chief justice were just beating on him? Uh, I almost spoke in, it, you know, it was, Jake ran an amazing debate. He was the quarterback, I was a wideout, Dana was a wideout. Right. Uh, the other team were the 11. We scored repeatedly, we brought 23 plus million people. I think the late numbers show we had more people than Fox, and that doesn't count our radio audience. We had it on 200 radio stations. And so I believe that it was wildly successful and accomplished what we needed to accomplish. At the, and Jake gets all kudos. And, and my conservative friends are mad. You only got five questions in the second debate, three in the first debate. It was a great game, and it went according to plan. If I was tempted to jump in anywhere, it would have been to defend the chief because there is a defense of the Obamacare decision, which I made often, which every judicial conservative, and I am one, knows that if there's any way you can save a law, you save a law. And it's up to the legislature to fix it. So you were sitting there and having to listen to all this stuff about Roberts. I mean, do you think it's a little hypocritical of these guys to hit him after they supported him? It is not hypocritical because they genuinely hate the Obamacare decision. But a different argument can be made that the Obamacare decision, both of them, are consistent with a view of the court that should not surprise anyone. And I do not know that Michael Liddick would have decided it differently because there's an overriding proposition that if you can save a statute, you save a statute, and democracy has to work this out. I also tend to believe there is not, uh, I was quoted Marbury versus Madison from, from the front, and it's 1803, right? It's at 1803, the Constitution is, is ratified in 1789. So we got along for 14 well, you, years without Marbury. People really don't really get that. I mean, like, uh, I found, uh, what, did you see, did you get to watch the first debate? Yes. At all. Oh, yes. I thought Lindsey Graham was great uh, when, he's, when he's sort of like, I'm not, you know, where he does a sort of deputy dog routine, yeah. but he's like, uh, I'm not a great lawyer, but I know Marbury versus Madison, right? Yeah, he's, he, by the way, he's a very fine lawyer, and he needs a crowd. The difference between oh, Lindsey great. 1 and Lindsey 2 is he had someone to play to, and they gave him a laugh, and he takes energy from the crowd. It was remarkable to watch. Could he be anybody's vice president? Could he be anybody's defense secretary? He what's he, the what's he playing for? Yeah. Uh, well, I think he's playing to kill ISIS, and I wish he would stop calling it ISIL, though he has a theory in his mind because they're after the Levant that people need to say ISIL, not ISIS. I've asked him about it. He's playing to kill him. He is very, very seriously worried uh, that they have— the capability of hitting the country as they did on 9-11. And, and if we are hit in the next year, Lindsey Graham's going to roll the tape and say, I told you. I'll, I'll go, I would love for you to have Lindsey Graham and Donald Trump on at the same time and have a debate about ISIS. Now, granted, they both agree on the same thing, but I think the contrast in seeing like uh, Graham's approach and his knowledge base with Trump's would be really interesting. Someone told me we needed brackets. And uh, the brackets would be, I don't know how you would seed the brackets. I don't think I'd put Graham and, and Trump in the first round. That's a great idea. Yeah, oh, it would be. If you had, somewhat, it's not mine. I can't remember who came up with it, so I can't claim it. But I think you'd kind of go 16-1, so it would be Pataki Trump at the beginning. Yeah. And they're both New Yorkers. Right. And there wouldn't be anything left of George at the end of that. But, but <laughs> I'm not then, so sure. I am. I've interviewed them both. He is I've tall. interviewed he, George three a, or four times. He's tall. He's a shot blocker. <laughs> don't, don't. Comes off the bench. At Dra the yeah, drags the left. <laughs> would have been great. I think would have been a real asset for you and Robert's team back in the day. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's a sweet man. Um, but I honestly, I don't, yeah, you yeah. know, he's got two sons in the service. Yes. He said this on the air, so yeah. I don't mind saying this. A Marine and, a, and an Army guy, and he won't pick between the two of them. So he's obviously a great man, was a great governor. 
But unlike, his 69 is very different from Trump's 69. He's yeah. laconic and he's 69. Donald Trump is without age. Okay. I, I, nobody knows he's 69. You said that he was, what did you say? That he was the best interview? Best interview in America. Do you really believe Absolutely. that? Absolutely. I got oh, asked this by on. Talkers Magazine yesterday. Michael said, do you really believe that? And I said, I, if you ask me right now, who would I start with my show with on Monday? Right. In order to get ratings, and you could have Oprah, you could have Tiger Woods, or you could have Donald Trump. I would take Donald Trump. Why? Because people listen to him. Oh, oh I'm no, in no, the business stop. of ratings. No, no, no. Come on. Okay, so now this is a bug. This is a, a, a bee in my bonnet. You and I, and I. One of the things that you did early, and your interview with Tom Edsall a while back, uh, a while oh, back about Woodward was really, really good. Um, the uh, but your whole thing was checking checking people's politics. That's I think is a totally legitimate thing. You know, I don't buy that it completely colors the way that people go. But I would like to, to, to pick a, a bone on something else. I think one of the real characteristics of the coverage of Trump and one of the things that it illuminates about journalism is the bias isn't political. The bias is audience. The bias is about promotion, about moving numbers. It is for us, man. If you look at the top of our site, the top six stories on any given day are Donald Trump stories. To what extent do you think the our chasing uh, and, you know, we're in a business that needs it needs eyeballs. We're talking about the CNN debate. To what extent do you think our bias, uh, understandable towards getting viewers and readers, distorts the Trump phenomenon? Uh, it amplifies Donald Trump greatly. And I, I used the analogy the other night. Got a laugh out of Anderson Cooper. I said, the first debate was Downton Abbey, episode one, introduced the characters, touch gloves. The second debate could be the Red Wedding. And I was trying to build up. I said, that's what it could be. I wanted to build an audience, and it worked. We beat Fox. And so we had more eyeballs because they thought, Red Wedding, you know. That, that's Hugh, I, I just got to say something. We're off air, we were talking about Louis C.K. You don't know who Louis C.K. is, but you know about the Red Wedding. I've listened Downton to every Abbey. minute of all the audio books. I can pronounce <laughs> the names, and I know where they depart from the script. And my, uh, my, I'm a geek on stuff. You got to read stuff. Chris Saliza, I hate him. You know Chris? Yeah. I hate Chris because he turned me on to the Wheel of Time gr books, of which there are 14, each one of which is 20 hours long. Is that long. the Ken Follett? Uh, no, Ken Follett's the uh, the, the, the foundation Century Trilogy, yeah, 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 yeah. and that's fine. I'm done with that. Yeah. No, this is 14 fantasy books, and it's it's about uh, Rand, the uh, Return of the King. It's just the craziest damn thing. Rand the Paul. Rand the Paul. And it just goes on forever, so I'm in the winter of my life, and I've got all this, you know, spring is coming. Oh, well, this explains why you, you looked interested throughout the entire debate, but <laughs> <laughs> no, back to the Trump thing. No, seriously, man, come on. You, you, there's a difference between him being interesting and a difference between him getting audience. Come on, who is, okay, apart from Trump. I'll let you off the hook a little bit on this. No, you know, great yeah. interview means to me, I, I want my show to spread. It's right. got 15 segments. If I can get Donald for two, I have 13 other segments where audience carries over. More stations pick me up. More people know about me. The show spreads. Its influence grows. Trump's the greatest thing for my show ever. Right. Ever. Six right. interviews. So he is the best interview in America for me at this time. When he falls off the cliff, if he falls off the cliff, it won't be. If he becomes the president, and I said it's 25%, he gets a nomination. Uh, and he talks to me because he thinks he's fair. And he, no, he'll get mad at me, and then he won't be mad at me. Right. And he'll get mad at me, and then he won't be. If I have that relationship with the president of the United States, I'm impacting history, which is what journalists try to do with a bumper shot. Fair enough. I'll give you a counter argument. I heard an anecdote about a well-known reporter. I won't mention his or her name, uh, who was on a flight with Trump, asked Trump a question Trump didn't like. When the when the plane landed, uh, Trump's uh, SUV leaves, and this uh, reporter is standing on the tarmac. <laughs> 
I mean, to me, that, that, that was a very powerful image, and it speaks to a reality in this cycle that I haven't seen in other, other cycles. The power, you know, this magnetic power of celebrity and the way that we're all sort of glomming onto it, right? Saw it a little bit with Obama in 08, right? Interesting. Do, do you uh, think in terms of policy, you know, you were in the White House. You've dealt with Nixon, who's probably, for all his flaws, one of the most substantive people in the world. Don't you think, to some extent, that this creates a paradigm, an expectation of entertainment that politics shouldn't deliver? It's not inevitable. It does right now. Uh, Mitt Romney was the antithesis of Donald Trump, though he's every bit as successful in business, and we don't know what his right. wealth is because it was... Uh, uh, managed differently than the way Donald manages it. But I edited Mitt Romney's book. I know him well. I have immense respect for him. Uh, I would not be moderating these debates if he were in it because I don't think I could divorce myself right. from objectivity with Mitt Romney because I thought he was so perfectly uh, positioned to be the president of the United States. And I still think that um, in the next administration, when they look for the secretary of state, they're going to pick up Mitt Romney and say, would you please come help us reorganize the world because it's a mess. And he'll do it. He'll do whatever the country calls him to do. Uh, so he had a different kind of celebrity, and it was not this kind of celebrity at all. Donald Trump is different from any presidential candidate, and I think we have to go back to Teddy Roosevelt. And Doris Kearns Goodwin did this in the bully pulpit. I don't know if you read that sure. about William Howard Taft. And Teddy Roosevelt could not not be Teddy Roosevelt. And he was a larger-than-life celebrity. But he was also an intellectual. He was also a, a fantastic writer. And he also had a command of issues second to nobody at, at that particular time. And he also went hunting in the Amazon. And he also went to Africa. And he had all these cattle in Montana that he would set that all aside and, and go he, do his stuff. And he uh, not only fought in a war, Hugh, he organized his entire regiment and self-financed it. Donald Trump has not done that. Those are different eras where you could do that. Now, if that was possible today, you don't know that Donald wouldn't do that. You just can't do it now. So if you if you are in fact looking for celebrity status on the eve of the of the Spanish American War, I know what I'll get a regiment together, and they'll make you Colonel Roosevelt. Now Donald Trump might get a regiment to go to Syria right now, except we don't allow that anymore. I got to tell you something. You got that is a. I am going to hold you accountable to this. You got to ask him if he's going to self finance a regiment to go to Syria. When you get on. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. It's called the Logan I, Act. Dude, I will give you a ten dollar bill with, a, with the, my signature well, on it. You're going to you, change the picture on that. Yeah, you, What'd yeah, you make of that round of questions, by the way? I thought, honestly, I thought one would have been we can. I would go with the code name. The code name thing I think was the funniest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, and it was it was weird because all of them sucked, right? <laughs> like, well, no, no, uh, Energizer, uh, Ever Ready. No, no, I, that was perfect. Uh, well, Ever Ready was well, whatever. But Humble I, was perfect. Humble, Humble was. I'm sorry. I will. I will give him that. Um, but I thought the second. The, I thought two of the two silly season questions were probably a little too much. It, too well, look, it's it's three and a half hours. I, I give Jake all the the credit because at the end you have to find a way to transition. You can't transition yeah. from drama. You can't. I agree. I mean, it's a television show. You can't. There's not going to be. We don't come back till December. Yep. You can't have the red wedding, and we're not going to have season two next year. You've got to lighten it up low-key it, and take it away. And I think Perfectly Jake, landed. The I, jet landed perfectly. I think uh, uh, Jake is the most uh, misunderestimated, uh, misunderestimated big TV journalist. One more the, minute. Yes. The transition's been made. Dickerson is good. Todd is great. Jake is great. John's great, too. The, the transition's been made flawlessly, and my hat is off to them. Chris Wallace is the old man of TV, and he's not old. Uh, so it's set. Those are the four guys that will be doing the debates. Uh, I think those four guys will do four debates in the in the fall, and they will be well served because they're all fair. Uh, just to wrap up, let me ask you in general: Do you think uh, um, 
and again, this kind of gets to the to the Trump thing, and I'm a broken record on this stuff. But uh, do you think this particular process, and you've seen a ton of these cycles, and you've been a, a key player since '76, and I've not been a key player. I've been a marginal player, no, but I watch them. I'd say last, you know, last cycle, oh eight through the through this cycle, you've been somebody that people. Uh, I've been a Romney guy for two cycles. Right. Yeah. Um, do you think this is getting dumber, smarter? Do you think that this process is uh, helping to define or destroy the Republican Party? It, for both parties, it is so much harder because there are 24-7, 365, 5 million people with cell phones waiting to destroy you or amplify anything you say. So you, you have to be more careful, more controlled, and at the same time, more authentic and a, and a better ability to touch and communicate with people. So it's much harder to get the nomination. It's an obstacle course that keeps getting longer more complicated, and uh, I didn't. I saw the Hunger Games, but I didn't see the crazy one about the maze, and and so it's like the Hunger Games. Every time you do, you think you're done. There's a new thing that comes up. Interestingly enough, Carly Fiorina, who killed it, right by consensus, right. gold medal by consensus, silver medal to Rubio. There's some disagreements on the bronze. Some people say Christie, some people say Jeb, and that's the consensus view on, on the debate. Well, Carly Fiorina has been on my show more than any other candidate. I had heard a lot of her answers before. She's been practicing, and not just on my show, everywhere. Talk radio is where these candidates need to go to get their at-bats before they show up in bigger venues with uh, more complicated questioners. And they come on my show because they know... I'm not adverse to them, but I will ask them really hard questions. Well, what I think is, uh, not to blow smoke, what I think is great about your show uh, in general is uh, how, I, I hate to say this, how journalisty you are. Not journalisty like journalists, but how, You're sounding like Colbert. How repertorial you are. And it's an interesting, you mentioned Colbert. I think what's interesting about Colbert's trajectory, he's a great interviewer, is how he started off as a goof. He started off not uh, coming from it, uh, coming at it from a, a non- journalistic perspective and eventually evolve the chops that mainstream journalists have. Haven't you sort of had that trajectory? I yeah. know you have an ideology, but do you feel yourself becoming more and more of a reporter and less and less of an advocate? Uh, I, I, I do believe that interviews dominate the next generation of talk radio, and I've always been doing interviews. And so I just think the medium changed to fit the show, not the show changing to fit the medium. I've always done interviews a lot more because I'm not that interesting. I don't believe that I can do monologues for three hours. But I believe there are many millions of interesting people who uh, I do uh, an average show between seven and ten interviews, and that's five days a week. So if you add it up, I've done 25,000 interviews. That's the future. Interviews are the future. And then the transcriptions that we provide via Dwayne and Daniel and others drive the news out. And they provide you and everyone else. So if I send it, you know, Marlon sends you yeah, yeah. Uh, eight transcripts a day. You can read through them in a second. You can't listen to a podcast, but you can run down a transcript and say, ah, hook. Right. And that's how we push the show forward. And that's how candidates push it forward. I think that's the future. How have you evolved? I mean, when you first started doing this, when you listen back, uh, if you listen back, uh, how have you improved? I mean, how has this thing uh, changed? Uh, who? Uh, the, the fellow um, Malcolm Gladwell takes 10,000 times to get good. I've done 25,000 interviews. And uh, I, I have a friend who's a fighter pilot, took his admiral up and won every dogfight with him. He's a young guy, lieutenant commander. And uh, he's, I said, how'd that go? And he said, well, the admiral was kind of ticked off at first. And, then he, and I said to him, 
don't you want it to be that way? And he said, and the animal thought, he said, oh yeah, you're right, you should be better than me. Well, after 25,000 interviews, I ought to be able to do interviews. And Chuck has said to me, he lets me ask questions on Meet the Press and, and Jake. I'm a question asker. I'm comfortable in the debate. It's not my first rodeo. And Jake's a question asker. Dan is a question asker. They should put more diverse question askers. I thought that was perfect. You had two mainstream journalists about whom there is no ideological slant and a conservative. And I hope they put a conservative and a liberal on the presidential debates with three mainstream people because I think the diversity helps. Well, I agree with you. And Hugh, keep giving them help. Thank you, Glenn. 